Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Father, we're so thankful today that we can come leaping and dancing with joy in our hearts into your presence. Father, I thank you that you take delight in us like that, because above everything you want to free people. You want people who have been redeemed from this present darkness and who are translated into the kingdom of your light and your precious Son. And Father, tonight we come before you with our hearts leaping in adoration. And Father, it's so wonderful to know you're a loving God and a lovely God. And indeed, it's true to say that your heart is just leaping with joy to see us all gathered here. And I want to pray in Jesus' name, Father, that the refreshment of the Holy Spirit should be upon us all. Oh, that, Father, tonight we should learn the glorious truths that are in the Word of God and be excited and thrilled and changed by them. Father, we pray your Holy Spirit will come and strangely warm us inside. And, Father, that we should feel his presence glorifying Jesus in us and Jesus giving all the glory to the Father. Tonight, Father, we want to say that we want you to have all the glory. Take everything that we say, everything we think, and may it all be Jesus' words and Jesus' sounds, Jesus' thoughts, that you may be glorified, even in us. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Right, we come tonight to the last of the first course of Bible studies. Now, we've been through quite a number of subjects My aim has been to lay a foundation from which we can leap forward, a sort of springboard from which we can leap into a full and complete understanding of the Word of God. One day we're going to begin verse-by-verse studies of the major books of the Bible. If we don't get the basics right before we begin, then actually we're going to find ourselves in the most awful mess imaginable. And this course has been designed to do that. The other thing it's been designed to do, of course, is to provide maturity and stability for the people of God. I hope, for example, there's no one here who is still doubting um, that they've perhaps not, not saved at all, or that they've lost their salvation, or perhaps they've committed the unforgivable sin. You shouldn't be worried about those things at all. In fact, you should be able to uh, say exactly what you believe they are, and know exactly where you stand as far as they're concerned. Now, there's no reason, therefore, for any person in this room to lose any flying time in the spirit because of these things. You know, the time when Satan could actually make you anxious over them ought to be finished and should be completely gone once and for all. After all, you see, it's our lives that are actually going to preach the gospel to the world. And it's time we as Christians started putting our lives where our mouths are I I really must say, I think a lot of non-Christians are really seriously disturbed by the fact that so many Christians will give them the gospel verbally, but as soon as they look at their lives, they can't see the gospel coming out. It's essential, you see, that the people you work with and the people you talk with and the people you live with are going to see the difference that having God with you and in you is going to make. If it doesn't make any difference, then, well, it's really quite an unbelievable situation. It's no good if you go to work and feel moody and feel upset at the slightest bit of pressure that uh, comes along. Because as soon then as you get an opportunity to preach the gospel, you're going to turn around and say to them, Oh, you need God in your life. And they're going to remember all those times that you've been down and out and you've been as bad as they are. And they're really going to turn around and say to you, Now look, if uh, I need God in my life and if you've got God in your life, How come there isn't a major difference between us? He can't be much of a God, you see. Uh, I think the devil has robbed Christians for long enough. And I think it's time we called uh, the devil's tune, his bluff, time we called his bluff and actually started living the Christian life. The Holy Spirit is in me for one purpose only, to reveal Jesus in this case, praise God, that where I am, Jesus may be seen. And the reason that Jesus must be seen is because this world needs Jesus, desperately. It doesn't need my philosophy, doesn't need my ideas, it's got to have his ideas. And that means every time I'm questioned about something, the thoughts of Jesus should come out. The Chinese give the, have the thoughts of Chairman Mao, I should actually be able to give the thoughts of Jesus over every issue. We should actually be Jesus to the world. So that when they need help, and when they need comfort, and when they need security, and when they need love, it's to us that they're going to come, because they recognise Jesus in us. Now, it's the Word of God, revealed by the Holy Spirit, that does the changing. 
Do you know that the thing closest to the Father's heart is the salvation of any sinner? It's closer to the Father's heart than any other purpose that the Father has. He loves seeing people saved more than anything in the whole world. I'll never forget the day when I realised that. That actually Jesus was, uh, the Father was more thrilled about my salvation than I was. Now I'm th pretty thrilled about my salvation. But the day I realised the Father was even more thrilled than I was about my salvation, showed me exactly what, what saving souls was all about. You know that little verse, do you, in Luke 15, verse 10, where it says there is more joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. And I've always misread that, to say that the angels are more joyful. It doesn't say that at all. It says there's more joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. Who's in the presence of the angels? The Father is. And it's that marvellous view of the Father, who when he sees um, a sinner turning and being saved, he jumps up in all the excitement that's in his heart and starts saying, that's fantastic, look what's happened, and dancing for joy. He did it when you were saved. That's how much salvation means as far as the Father is concerned. And so obviously the Father wants people saved. And that's why I'm here. He loves me so much, he'd rather have me up there with him. He'd rather I was dead and with him forever in heaven. But I'm here and you're here as an ambassador for Christ. A living epistle. What about that? A talking book. There we are, revealing Jesus in everything that we do. Now that's the essence of the Christian life. And every Christian has got to start living that because that's the Father's desire and the Father's will as far as every Christian is concerned. All right? When we meet non-Christians, we've got to know how best to present the gospel. It's no good, you know, just handing out a tract or just giving your testimony automatically or just saying the same old pat phrases. It's essential to see where they are in their own experience. For example, we live in uh, such a godless world at the moment that if you gave your testimony to some of the people who are around in our society, they're likely to say, oh, that's fantastic. You mean Jesus changed your life? You mean when Jesus came into your heart, you felt enlightened? Oh, yes, drugs do the same to me. And they'll turn around and they'll give you a testimony about drugs or what Hare Krishna did or what Christian science has done in their life. Now, if you meet such a person as that, it's no good giving your testimony. They're going to need something else. However, some people need your testimony. Some people need you to concentrate on this aspect. Some people need you to concentrate on that aspect. But we need the Holy Spirit to guide us as to where our attack should come or where our witness should come. Every person you meet is an individual. They've got a different background. They've had different problems. They've been affected differently by the things in their past. And Jesus has got the answer. But we've got to put the answer over in the area where they need it. Now, tonight I'm going to take the subject of the rich young ruler. And one of the things we're going to see from this tremendous story is how Jesus meets an individual as an individual and gets straight to the root of the problem. Just last Sunday I was speaking to a man whose fundamental problem was he couldn't accept the word of God. You see? There's no good my talking about everything under the sun. We've got to deal with that problem before we deal with any other problem. You see? Jesus always did it. So I'm, I want you to turn with me, please, to Mark and chapter 10, to the story of the rich young ruler. <clears throat> Mark and chapter 10, and beginning verse 17. Now, this uh, story is one of those incidents that's actually recorded in three of the Gospels. Three of the four Gospels contain this story. Uh, they're called the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke. They all record the story. 
And they're all very slightly different as far as the story is concerned. Now, that shouldn't throw you as Bible believers. If you've got a dialogue going on between two people and you've got three people listening in, if you actually ask them to write an account of what was said, they'll all put a different emphasis on what was said. They can all be accurate, but they'll all put a different emphasis. And here we have um, a situation described and the three Gospels give a very different account or slightly different account of the same incident. As soon as we combine all three, we probably get most of the content of what actually went on, you see, because some of these conversations lasted much longer than they are recorded in the Word of God. And so by combining all three, we'll get the total picture. For example, I call it the rich young ruler. If you read this particular passage in Mark 10, the only uh, thing you'll get from it is that he was rich. Uh, he's not called young, and he's not called a ruler in these. But we learn those from the other gospel accounts. For example, Matthew uses um, the phrase young. He was a young man. Okay. And the word young in Greek actually means a man who was out of boyhood, but not quite into middle life. So we know his age was probably late teens or twenties, perhaps even early thirties. But that was the type of age that he was. And it's Luke that tells us that he's a ruler. The word ruler, uh, it, it's used a great deal of many uh, things, including angels in the Bible, actually meant a high-ranking Pharisee. So here's a man who is high-ranking and he's a Pharisee. And it's usually used of a member of the Sanhedrin. So this isn't just a spotty teenager coming to Jesus. This is a multimillionaire, probably. Uh, he's got a very high position as far as society is concerned, and he's also a Pharisee. Now, that's the man that's actually coming to Jesus. Now, praise God, Jesus is omniscient. I praise God for Jesus' omniscience. I always have. I've been thrilled by his omniscience. As soon as Jesus saw this man, he knew everything that had gone on in that man's life. Hasn't that thrilled you? To know that when actually you see Jesus face to face, there's nothing that you can have kept secret from him. He's not going to find out some dreadful truth that he didn't know was in your life and cast you out. Not at all. He knew it all. I think the woman taken in adultery must have had a revelation of that. You imagine, caught in the act, a terribly sordid past, taken to Jesus. And I think she knew that he knew everything about her. And she looked into his eyes. And those eyes just told her everything. Those eyes, full of love and full of compassion and absolutely not one scrap of condemnation or hatred anywhere in them. And I think that changed her life. I think she must have thought, he knows everything about me. And those eyes, what about those eyes? Absolutely searing into me with compassion to melt me inside. And I don't think she was the same again. Praise God. Caught one look of the eyes of Jesus. And do you know, if I could catch or you could catch one little vision of the eyes of Jesus, we'd understand what Romans 8.1 was all about. No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I think, you know, it's enough to make any person just lift up out of the grime and the dirt of their lives and be transformed to see the eyes of Jesus just loving and loving and loving. And Jesus meets this rich young ruler. Okay, and he knows all about him. And he just looks at him and sees just a helpless sinner who needs salvation. Let's have a look at the story. Verse 17 is where we begin. And he's a genuine man. He's really seeking after the truth. He wants to know the truth. And it says, And when Jesus was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him, and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And I think the kneeling in front of Jesus shows he was very, very sincere in what he meant. But you know, that one sentence speaks volumes. It speaks volumes to me. I know for a while it spoke volumes to the Lord. Let's have a look at the sentence that he uses. Because from that sentence, Jesus is going to know how he's going to deal with this young man. He's going to know where the man's absolutely off base in his beliefs and he's going to know how best to counter him to give him the gospel. Uh, first of all, the phrase good master. Now the word master 
uh, was used of a human teacher. The word Lord, of course, always refers to Jesus as the Messiah or as a God, as a divinity. He doesn't use that. He says, Master. And what that word shows is that he was impressed by the scholarship and the learning and the teaching of Jesus. He looked at Jesus and thought, now there's a good teacher if ever I've seen one. Uh, we would use professor, I suppose. Oh, hello, professor. Uh, could you help me with this problem or that problem or the other problem? All right, so there's a good teacher as far as this man is concerned. Absolutely nothing else. And having said that, though... It, he actually uses the phrase, not just master, he uses the phrase, good master. And as soon as you come to that, the man has revealed where he's out and where he's wrong. The word good there is a Greek word, and it's the word agathos. A-G-A-T-H. A-G-A-T-H-O-S. Agathos. Now, <clears throat> there's a saying the Greeks always had a word for it, and that's absolutely true. They have many words for the word good. The one used here, agathos, is usually used with a special meaning. And it means not just good, it means intrinsically good. All right? A goodness which is automatically inside. I think an example will serve here. Um, gold is intrinsically valuable. It doesn't matter how you find a piece of gold. It doesn't matter where you find a piece of gold. It will always have value. Uh, if you have a jug made of gold, it's valuable. If, you, if a car runs over the jug, it's still valuable. You see, that's not true of many things. Um, it, it can be splintered and split up. You can find a nugget just lying in the ground. It's always valuable. You can even find someone's filling. And if it's a gold filling, it's automatically valuable, you see. And honestly, you can take it into a, a valuer and you can say, this is a filling and it's gold and he'll give you some money for it. You see, he won't say, oh, I'm sorry, that's just a filling. It has value within itself, you see. There's an intrinsic value in gold. Wherever you find it, it's intrinsically valuable. And this man, who views Jesus as a human teacher, is saying to him, Jesus, you're intrinsically valuable. He would also, by the way, go up to any other teacher that he respected and say to them, oh, good master. What does it show? It shows this. He doesn't know anything about the fall of man. Absolutely nothing. This man believes that Jesus as a human teacher, or Mr. X as a human teacher, is capable of getting his own salvation. He thinks that any teacher who's good has a goodness within him which will eventually lead him up into heaven. You see? Now that's his error. I hope after this Bible course, there's no one here who actually is guilty of the same error. You know, don't you, that the fall of man is one of the bases of our faith. That actually we believe that when Adam sinned, he not only fell himself, but he dragged the whole of humanity into a completely fallen state. And because man's fallen, that's why he needs a saviour. You see, the fall is of extreme essence, a very valuable principle as far as we are concerned. It's the basis of everything. Now, in the world today, people don't believe in the fall. They believe that man is basically good. And so they'll ask questions like, uh, how can a god unfairly judge a group of human beings? Now, you see, if man is fallen, it's not unfair. Man deserves to be judged. And if a man says that's you, you've immediately got to say, this man doesn't understand the fall, and I've got to point out. We're all fallen. When Adam sinned, it meant that every single human being, the rich young ruler, you, me, all of us, actually deserved God's judgment. It also meant something else, that being fallen, there's nothing we can do to impress God. All the works of a fallen being are fallen works. And he's not a fallen God, and they can't impress. They cut no ice as far as God is concerned at all. And this man's totally off base. He's saying this brilliant teacher, or that brilliant teacher, just a man, is able to get himself by his own works into heaven. And he's wrong. Absolutely. Isaiah express, expresses it perfectly as far as we're concerned. All your good deeds, he said, are filthy rags. Absolutely filthy rags. They all add up to nothing. And the more good you do out of your old fallen nature, the more filthy rags you've got in the way of you and God. That's actually what he's saying. 
That man didn't believe it. You see, he believed it, uh, that uh, a human teacher was good. And notice what he says. What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Matthew puts it differently. Matthew shows us that the man actually said, What good thing, Agathos, can I do that I may inherit eternal life? <clears throat> so here this man is actually saying that he, as a member of the human race, has got some good in him. So he's saying to Jesus, Well, Jesus, what good thing can I do so to make sure that I get up there one day? Now, that's the fundamental question that's being asked. Um, to refresh our memories, keep your finger in the place and let's see two verses. You should be able to quote these almost off by heart. Ephesians 2, 8. 8. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And the rich young ruler needed to hear that. Look, you're saved by grace. There's nothing you can do at all for your salvation, except believe. And that's it. It's a gift of God. The other one, of course, Titus. Got five T's. Thessalonians, Thessalonians, Timothy, Timothy, and Titus. And in Titus 3, 5, we've got the other verse. Titus 3, 5. <clears throat> All right. Titus 3, 5. Um, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, there it is. Not because of your good works. All your good works are filthy rags. They mean nothing. It's by his grace you've been saved. Every single time. It's by his grace. By his grace. By his grace. Now, you watch it. You're going to meet people today who are in exactly the position of the rich young ruler. They think that by their works they're going to get to heaven. Now, how does Jesus deal with them? Most interestingly. Verse 18 and Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is, God. Now here, Jesus is not saying that he's not God. And Jesus is not saying that he didn't deserve to be called good. Do you know what he's doing here? He's taking the assumption that the man's making. Yes. That he is a human teacher. And he's more or less saying, Well, if I'm a human teacher, why are you calling me Agathos? Why are you calling me good? What do you mean by good? And then he says the great truth. There's only one good, and that's God. Now, do you see what he's done? He's got straight to the root of the problem. The reason this man doesn't know about eternal life is he's got the wrong idea about man. And so Jesus lifts the word good onto a divine level. And he says, look, you call me good and you think I'm a human teacher. I'll tell you, there's only one person who's good. And that's God himself. Remember, we saw this in the barrier. This was one of the bricks of the barrier. Uh, on one side of the barrier, you've got God's absolute righteousness. He's absolutely righteous and absolutely good. And on the other side, you've got fallen man, and ne'er the twain shall meet. All right? And fallen man's got sin on him, and all the time he's busy cranking out filthy rags. There we are. In other words, building up the barrier. And the great problem was... How on earth will that man ever get through to God? And the answer was, well, through a number of things, actually. The sins were dealt with, first of all. Jesus removed the sins. And he dealt with the filthy rags. All right? But then you had to come to the position where man had to meet God. And God, in all his holiness and goodness on that side, and man on that side, had to be brought together. And how did Jesus do it? He removed the brick with what we call imputation. Right? Imputation says this, that I, as a fallen man, can't meet God. But Jesus took my sin and gave me his righteousness as a present. Praise God. Isn't that great news? He didn't just leave you in a state of neutrality. Because a plus that God is and a neutral can't meet. You had to be made of equal righteousness as far as God was concerned. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. Alright? That we should be the righteousness of him, or have the righteousness of him. 
praise God. The righteousness of God in him, which is Christ. Now that's marvellous. And it means this, I'm covered with a robe of righteousness. So if I died now, I meet God face to face. He's righteous and Christ given me the absolute righteousness that is his. That's imputation. Now, this man didn't understand that. He had no conception at all of these uh, problems. And Jesus begins pointing out, look, only God is good. You need more than anything you can crank out to get you to the status of goodness. There it is. The other thing Jesus knew about him was he's a Pharisee. And a Pharisee, of course, believed in the law. Not quite the law, though. It was a perverted view of the law. Do you know what they'd done? They'd taken the law completely out of context and they changed it so that they could manage it and live under it, you see. You remember when the law was actually given in the Old Testament, the one thing that came out on Mount Sinai was the presence and the holiness and the goodness of God. Do you remember that? Do you remember how the people just couldn't stand near the mountain because of the holiness of God? Keep your finger in the place. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 5, where we see the expression of it. Deuteronomy and chapter 5. Because when the law was given, it was given right. This is before religious people got their hands on it. All right, and beginning verse 22, Mount Sinai. And Moses delivers the law, and then he records what happens when the law was given. Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning verse 22. These words the Lord spake unto all your assembly in the mount, out of the midst of the fire, of the cloud and of the thick darkness, with a great voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them in two tables of stone, and delivered them unto me. And it came to pass, when ye heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, for the mountain did burn with fire, that ye came near unto me, even all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And ye said, Behold, the Lord our God has showed us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God doth talk with man, and he liveth. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more. Then we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that hath heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and lived? And then they say, Go thou near, Moses, and hear all that the Lord our God shall say. And speak thou unto us all that the Lord our God shall speak unto thee, and we will hear it and do it. And it says those words, Please God. Now what was that? When the law was given, the absolute separation had come. There was God in his holiness and there was man unable to approach into the holiness of God. And you remember the law was given to show man that he was an utter sinner. Ten commandments were given which no man could keep in the way they were supposed to have been kept. Not one. And as soon as man hit against the ten commandments and broke one, Phase two of the law came in, and phase two of the law was full of ritual that they had to do when they broke the law. Marvellous. How wonderful that God put phase two in, knowing that they break phase one. You see? And you know what happened. They used to have to take a lamb, an innocent lamb that had never done anyone any harm. And the sins of the man were put on the lamb, and the lamb died. And what did it do? It led them through to Christ. Galatians 3 says that. That actually the law kept them and led them to Christ. And it actually says no man became righteous by the law. Not one. If they had, you wouldn't have needed faith, is the argument that it actually uses. Oh, what had the Pharisees done? Oh, well, they said. And they took hold of the law and they toned it all down to a state that was beautifully manageable. So that they could all walk around saying, oh yes, I keep the law, you know, completely. And they took hold of the law and they toned it all down to a state that was beautifully manageable so that they could all walk around saying, oh yes, I keep the law, you know, completely. You see? And they'd lost the whole purpose as far as the law was concerned. That's why Jesus, when he came, he constantly reaffirmed the law. Only he put it differently. He said, the law says to you, thou shalt not murder. 
By the way, the word is not kill, it's murder. There's an important difference between those two, two words. Thou shalt not murder. But I say to you that if you hate your brother, you've broken the law. Praise God. And Jesus again raised the law right up to the level that it should have been at. Fine, now here's this confused rich young ruler. A, Jesus has taught him a lesson about what divine goodness is. Now he's coming on to talk about the law. The rich young ruler in Mark 10 again believes that he can be righteous under the law. What Jesus does is this. He assumes that he's right. He assumes he's right. And then he goes on to show him that not even the rich young ruler can keep the whole law. James 2.10 says, if you break the law in one part, you're guilty of it all, every single part of it. And so here's this rich young ruler, and here's Jesus. And so Jesus says, this is verse 19, thou knowest the commandments, and then he starts listing them. Do not commit adultery, the seventh commandment. Do not murder, the sixth commandment. Do not steal, the eighth commandment. Do not bear false witness, the ninth commandment. Defraud not, the tenth commandment. Now, do you see, he's building them up, and the, the rich young ruler in his head is ticking them off. He knows all these, he's been brought up on them, and he's ticking them off. Oh, yes, yes, I've, I've never done that. No, I've never done this. No, I've never done that. That's correct. Suddenly, he's jolted, because Jesus reaches the tenth, and instead of stopping, he suddenly goes back to the fifth commandment. And here it is, honour thy father and thy mother. Now that's unusual. They normally put them in the order going up, you see. And this Pharisee is getting just used to the order coming out. And suddenly, right at the end, almost the 11th commandment, the 5th commandment suddenly bunged in. Now when Jesus does that, and those of you who know your Bibles, you know what he's up to. He knows that the man's real weakness is in the 5th commandment. And so he's going to zoom in on the fifth commandment to prove to the man that even under the law, he's not righteous. Have you seen Jesus do this again? Have you ever seen that? There's um, uh, one example, I think, in Luke 10 that comes to mind of a lawyer who comes to Jesus. And again, this lawyer, very religious man, oh yes, he's kept the law. And um, he asks the same question. He says, good master, exactly the same, good master, what shall I do? To have eternal life. And Jesus says, you know the commandments. He says, I do. And he starts reciting them. Very proud man. When he reaches number two, thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself, Jesus stops him and says, okay, well, there we are. Go and do it. Go and love your neighbour as yourself. Go on. And he knew that that lawyer had hang-ups as far as people were concerned. He only liked people like him. Anyone who wasn't like him, he didn't like. And one group of people he didn't like in particular, the Samaritans. He hated them. And so here's Jesus saying to him, right, we'll stop at number two. He zooms in to number two. And he says, go on, you fulfilled that one. So the Pharisee drums up the usual get out that all the Pharisees drummed up. <laughs> Love my neighbours myself, but who is my neighbour? And the Pharisees used to say that. They used to say, oh no, you don't have to help him, he's not your neighbour. You see? No, no. We define that he's not your neighbour. Your neighbour is only someone like us, a nice, good Pharisee, who's keeping the mission and the Talmud and all the other things. That's who your neighbour is. You just go and help him. And Jesus then says, I see. Who is your neighbour? And he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Dig, dig. You see, it's a Good Samaritan that's the hero of the story. And you've got a priest who walks past on the other side, you see, and you've got a Levite. I mean, it's pretty pointed stuff, isn't it, you know? If I had done that, you would have said, honestly, I do think you're a bit pointed in your remarks. But that's exactly what Jesus is doing. And what's the purpose? He's saying, look, any man who's in need that you come across, he's your neighbour, including a Samaritan. And the Samaritan can fulfil the law as well. Now he zooms in. So what's he doing here? He's zooming in on the very thing that this young, rich ruler is doing wrong. He's young and he's rich. And he's not honouring his father and his mother. By honouring, they've taken it to mean, oh, just honour them with your lips. Hi, pa. Hi, ma. You see. Um, yes, I've come to spend the afternoon with you. And just sit there doing that type of thing. That's not it. 
to honour meant much more than that. To honour meant to obey them when you were a child, but also to provide for them when they were old or infirmed. By the way, in the Bible it says, honour elders. It says, honour those who labour in the word and in doctrine. You see, now when we invite a minister whose ministry we honour and respect, we don't just say, oh, that's marvellous ministry. We provide hospitality, we provide money, we send them a cheque after they've been. That's part of the honouring system, you see. And here, to honour your father and mother meant money apart from anything and looking after them and sharing your home with them. But the Pharisees had a way out of that. And the way out was what I call the Corban gimmick, all right? Now, let's say Mark and have a look at the Corban gimmick, because this will explain why Jesus has zoomed in at this point. Turn with me to Mark chapter 7, Mark chapter 7 and verse 10. Mark 7 and verse 10. And this was a very, very simple system indeed. Here it is, verse 10, for Moses, this is Jesus speaking, Moses said, honour thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, you Pharisees say, and you've reinterpreted the law, ye say, if a man shall say to his father or mother, it is Corban, that is to say, a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free, and ye suffer him no more to do aught, for his father or his mother, making though a word of God of none effect through your tradition. Every one of us has got to make sure that we don't do that. If the word of God says it, it doesn't matter what we're used to. We've got to start putting the word of God into practice, which ye have delivered, and many such like things do ye. Now the Corban was jolly good. He was a man who got £100,000. All right? I just pick a figure from the air. I had someone write to me and say, how did I know that salvation took one-seventieth of a second? And was it significant? Well, it wasn't. No, I just picked that figure out of my head. I could have said a hundredth. And I'm just picking a hundred thousand pounds. You know, I haven't found it in the Greek or anything out of the air. Now, he wants to keep the hundred thousand pounds. If he's a young man, it's probable that his parents will be around for 20 or 30 more years. And he doesn't like that. You see, that's bad. So what they used to do was this. They used to go to the Pharisees and they used to have a, a thing called Corban. And they used to go to a priest and say, look, um, I'll pay you £10,000 if you'll declare the rest of my income and the rest of my property Corban. That is a gift of God, you see. And then when my parents come along and say, can I have some money, please? I can say, I'm terribly sorry. It's a gift that I've given to God and I don't have any money left. And if they say, well, that's wrong, I'm going to call the priest in, the priest will come in with the £10,000 in his purse and say, that's right, he's given it to God. And it was a very good system. And the Pharisees got richer and richer and richer, especially the priests, and the rich Pharisees remained as they were, with £90,000 to spend for themselves, you see. Now Jesus is saying, that's no good, that's hypocrisy. And that's what they've done. So when they said they were honouring their father and mother, they were, in their sense, you see. And our rich young ruler in Mark 10 had done just that. And that's why Jesus zooms in. Actually, he'd made money his God. He looked for treasure on the earth, and money was his big thing. Now notice his self-righteousness, verse 20. He answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. I've never done one of them wrong. And according to his teaching from the Pharisees, he hadn't either. The glorious thing about it all, of course is he still knew that he wasn't a saved man. That's why he's come to Jesus. Praise God. And I've generally found with religious people, they know they're not saved. And as soon as they get down slightly, they realise that they're uncertain of their salvation. And it's time, then, that we move in with the wonderful truth of assurance of salvation. And so Jesus, I love this verse, verse 21, then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. Super. I imagine those eyes of Jesus melting into the man. That's all. In the Greek, it actually says, Jesus <coughs> began falling in love with him. I love that. I think Jesus, you know, kept this young man in his heart until the man died. We don't know whether this man was actually saved. Probably not from this story. But we'll know when we get to heaven. 
But I think Jesus just loved him and loved him and loved him. You imagine seeing those eyes and remaining the same as you were before. I think the conviction began when he caught sight of those eyes and they'd started drilling into his insides. I think so. <laughs> Hallelujah. Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest. And now he's going to point out the whole thing that's wrong with this young man. He worships money. And that's the reason that he's done Corban and why he doesn't honour his father and mother. And so Jesus is going to point out the one thing. You believe you're going to be saved by your actions? I'll tell you an action you haven't done and an action that you can't do either. And he's hoping that's going to convict the man of his need. And he says, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And as soon as he said it, the man said, Blow it. It's the one thing. I hoped he wouldn't mention. It's the one thing I didn't want him to put his finger on. You see, salvation by works means that you've got to do the works. And generally speaking, no man is capable of doing the works. There are those people, for example, in the world today who believe that um, you'll be saved as long as you do good to everyone. There's always one person they just find they can't do any good to, that they just detest. It's that person you've got to point out to them and say, oh, you believe that as long as you're good to everyone, you're going to be saved. Well, what about Molly at work? You're really horrible to her. Now, that's the type of thing, to bring them into conviction. And that's what Jesus is saying. And then he says, and come, take up thy cross, isn't in the original. At that point, it's in other places, of course. And come and follow me, which means walk in the same path. Now, here's this man. And do you know that young man came into tremendous conviction? Oh, that he had fallen flat on his face at Jesus' feet and said, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Save me. But he didn't. And he loved money. Now, he had the choice. And he loved money. He worshipped money. He worshipped treasure on the earth much more than he ever wanted treasure in heaven. And it says, And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. Now, do you see, the thing I learn from this is the way Jesus approaches this subject. It's up to the young rich ruler whether he's going to accept Christ or not. But Jesus has presented the issue. He knocks the ground completely away from under his feet. He doesn't go into some highfalutin theological discussion. He points at the very line of weakness in the young man. And Jesus now, of course, with the disciples just behind him, never misses an opportunity to drill a message home to them. And this, young, this uh, rich young ruler goes away dejected. It says almost a storm cloud-like. In other words, a lowering sky, a depression formed over his head. You know, you see it in cartoon characters sometimes, don't you? The one that's moody's got a rain cloud over them. And that's what this means, you see. Almost with a depression hanging on the head, he knew that actually he wasn't a saved man, and he knew that even under his own terms, he wasn't saved. And all the disciples are astonished. They have to be astonished at this. A rich, influential young man, and Jesus has turned him away. And so Jesus turns around, and he's going to get them. Now imagine that they're still looking, gaping after the rich young ruler. And verse 23, And Jesus looked round about, and saith unto his disciples. Now, it means he swung round and he caught their attention. They'd been looking at the rich young ruler running away out of the presence of Jesus. And he caught their eyes one at a time. And I imagine him gradually turning round and capturing their eyes one after the other and looking at them. Do you know why? They were born again, but they were as wrong in their thinking as the rich young ruler was. There we are. I find it with Christians time and time again. They're born again, but in their heads, they're enemies of Christ in their thinking. They really are. And he's going to start talking to them. He says, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? Do you know that's true? Do you know if you're a rich man in any area, not just possessions, but in personality, <coughs> uh, successful in business, it means that the kingdom of God is so much harder for you to get into. Because you'll never recognise your need, you see, of Christ. A person who's lonely realises they need a relationship with someone. And 
Sooner or later, they'll ask God in. Someone who's rich can always make sure they're out every evening on the town, you see, to try and hide that uh, particular type of loneliness. There is a little phrase, don't turn to it, but it's found in 1 Samuel 22, which describes David when he's on the run. And I've always thought it was applicable uh, to the body of Christ. And it says, and everyone that was in distress, and everyone that was in debt, and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him. Hallelujah. And I think that's a beautiful picture. And why not? Hallelujah. You see, it's us who are the messers who've realized we need God. The rich always cover up their need. It's going to hit them one day. You see, and that's what Jesus means, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And notice, the disciples were astonished at his words. Do you know why? Because in those days, it was thought that if you were rich, you were blessed of God. And the richer you were, the more blessed of God you were. You see? And here's Jesus exactly throwing it down. We have the reverse today, by the way. We've got people who believe that if you're poor and socially deprived, you can't be fallen or a sinner. No, it's those rich people who are the sinners. The William Tells, no, it's not William Tell, who Robin Hoods of this world, you see. The poor are always good and the rich are always bad. That's the type of thing. Now, I've got news for you. Rich or poor, you're a wretched, miserable sinner and you need Jesus to come into your life. Now, here it was the other way around. The rich were good and the poor were the sinners. And they were astonished. Jesus says, oh, it's hard for a rich man to come into the kingdom of God. And their mouths dropped open. There we are. Astonished. But Jesus answered them again, saith unto them, children, how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. There we are. Than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And as soon as you get to that phrase, a camel going through the eye of the needle, you'll always find people who will tell you what the eye of the needle was, how it was a little door in a big door leading into the city. Now, it's not true. It's an idiomatic expression for something impossible. It means it's totally and completely impossible. Now, the parts of uh, or other writings in the ancient world, they used to say an elephant going through the eye of a needle. And it meant a needle. Praise God. And it was saying it's totally and completely impossible. As Jesus goes on to say, a lovely little thing, by the way, that I found as I was studying this was beautiful. Uh, Matthew and Mark both use the same word for needle. But Luke uses a different word. Our beloved physician uses the only word for needle, meaning a surgical needle. Praise God. The needle that he was used to. I love that little touch. You see, it's an entirely different word in the Greek. And to Luke, it was a surgical needle that the uh, camel couldn't get through. <laughs> Praise God, you see. <coughs> it's impossible, is what Jesus is going to say. Now look, it is impossible. And if a rich man unloads all of his riches, he's still not going to go to heaven. They say, you know, a camel could only get through if you took all the goods off the back and all the rest. That's saying that if a rich man comes along and gives all his money away, then he'll be saved. It's not true. Absolutely untrue. It means it's totally and completely impossible. And look at this, verse 26, and they were astonished out of measure. Who among, uh, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? A rich, influential man can't be saved? Well, who am I? A poor, nothing person. How am I going to be saved then? And Jesus gives the answer. And Jesus, looking upon them, saith, with men it's impossible, but not with God. Hallelujah. For with God, all things are possible. Hallelujah. With men, it's impossible. No good thing dwells in any one of us. And you can give up all your money and you still won't get to heaven. And you can give up all your possessions and you still won't automatically go to heaven. There's only one way to get to heaven and that's believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. If we just go quickly over to Mark, sorry, into Matthew 19, <clears throat> we find... Jesus reassuring Peter and the others, because being simple and not understanding these things as we do, he then got worried, well, am I saved? Am I saved then? And here's a marvellous promise. And Jesus says in this promise, if you give anything up for him, he's going to reward you in this life. Praise God. It's not going to save you, 
but it's going, you're going to get reward for giving it up. And Paul says of himself, he says, if there's no resurrection, I'm a stupid man. I've given up everything, he says, absolutely everything. But praise God, because there's a resurrection, I'm going to be rewarded. And here's the promise. Uh, verse 27, then Jesus uh, then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and have followed thee. What shall we have therefore? And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me, and knock off the comma there, there's no comma, and ye which have followed me in the regeneration, and it means in the sphere of regeneration. In other words, those of you who are born again, Hallelujah. What's the promise? What's going to happen to you people? I'll tell you. And he was saying it before they died. Because the promises of God are yea and amen right now. Ye which have followed me in the re regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Every one that has forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive an hundredfold. And that's a promise. My beloved brethren, when you give up things in this life, you'll be rewarded by God. And the world can laugh at you and they don't know what they're talking about. And the world can think you're crazy. Well, they're going to have to give it up one day. Oh, yes. When they die, they're not going to be allowed to take it with them. Even though Eartha Kitt may say that she's not going unless she takes it with her. She's going to go one day. You see, we are the ones. We are the ones who are the ones uh, who have sense. Praise God. For it means that when we give these things up, we're going to receive them back again, a hundredfold, praise God, from the hand of God. And that's why Jim Elliot, who was killed by the, <coughs> the Indians in South America, said he is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Hallelujah. And look at that, shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. And the motto or the lesson that was learnt from the rich young ruler was this for the disciples, but many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And God is no respecter of persons. And whether you're rich or poor, whether you're influential or a nobody, whether you're high or low, whether you're a churchman or no churchman, whether you're low church, high church, it doesn't matter. Whether you're low atheist or a high atheist, it doesn't matter. You need Jesus. Praise God. All the people around you need Jesus. Your employers need Jesus. Any lords and ladies you know need Jesus. The queen, the king of any country, the emperor, they all need Jesus. And it's salvation that's the great equaliser. Salvation, not death. You see, for we're all fallen creatures. Everyone. All my good deeds as filthy rags. There's nothing I can do to get there. But what's impossible with me is possible with God. And that's why the message is the same for us all. Acts 16.31 Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved plus nothing. Hallelujah. Plus absolutely nothing. For by grace are you saved. Praise his wonderful name. That's the message we've got to give out. High and low. We're all the same. And we all need Jesus. Praise God. I just pray that God will by the Holy Spirit reveal to us how we are to speak to our non-Christian friends and neighbours so that we won't just repeat pat phrases or platitudes they don't understand but that we'll really see what the issues are and get through to them. Praise God. Next time, number one in Judgment Series. Amen. <laughs>